All right, if you are here, you are listening to an episode of Sky King's Mental Playground, Polkadot Web 3, and NFT Edition. So I've been running a podcast for a little over a year. We launched the first ever long-form podcast, NFT, with Bruno, who is episode one on this side of the world. And the entire time, it's been an experiment on the business model of media. We are launching now because I am looking for a technical co-founder. And so I'm going to be putting out all of the episodes that we have focused on around Polkadot, around Kusama, around NFTs, and around Web3 onto this channel, which is free. The other ones were behind a paywall because I do believe media should be paid for. But this is going to be an opportunity to connect, get more audience members, you know, just decrease the friction to listen. If you want to hear the other episodes, we've had some amazing guests, everybody from, you know, Professor Robin Hansen, Chris Williamson, um, a bunch of solo casts, Q&As, stuff like that. You can go to skmp.supercast.com. But, and without further ado, if you would like to build a company, one that is focused on changing the business model of media, one that leverages the power of Web3, but has a UX and experience that feels very native and easy to use. I have a vision for something I am calling Stoa, and I need your help to build it. So I'm going to drop a link like right in the description. If you're interested or anybody you know who you think would be a good fit, even just to have a conversation and to learn more, you can hit that link, fill out the form, and we will be in touch Welcome to this episode of Sky King's Mental Playground. Stability. Don't take yourself too seriously. We stand Sky on the King's Mental Playground. The only loss Breathe. in life is not realizing Stability. your potential. Build the world you want to see. Yeah. Sky King's Mental Playground. If you're listening to this, you have chosen to subscribe to Sky King's Mental Playground. The fundamental principle of this podcast is as an experiment is it's an experiment in changing the business model of media monetization as content. The focus is on centralized and decentralized systems. I'm incredibly um, grateful that you're here to listen to this. This first episode is my first true, true, true experiment into monetizing media in a completely different business model. So if you're listening to this right now, odds are you found this through my supercast and you're listening to it as a normal podcast. Before I get into anything, I want to let you know that this podcast is also available as an NFT. Um, It is the first of its kind. The entire podcast is available on the Remark app, which is rmrk.app which is the Kusama NFT platform, the only one on Kusama. If you go and look at the Sky King's Mental Playground collection, you'll have one NFT that is the whole episode. Uh, This can be listened to by anybody there, but it can also be owned by one person at a time. And it can be purchased there. I've also split up about 10 of my favorite clips ranging in 30 seconds to three minutes. 
moments of the podcast that I felt like were incredibly important and valuable and standalone pieces of art in themselves. So these will also be in the collection. Not every podcast I do will be released like this, but a lot will. The reason why this one is the one we're launching with, the reason why this launch was delayed from late August, is because this episode is with Bruno Schwartz. Bruno Schwartz is the founder and creator of the Remark platform. He has sat as on the council members of Kusama's Governance Council and Polkadot's Governance Council. He was an Ethereum 2.0 developer, so he worked on the Ethereum 2.0 team, and he worked for Web 3.0, which is you know, the future of crypto, um, before he left to start Remark full-time. Bruno is a fascinating, fascinating dude. I let him in this podcast describe more of his background and his story, but I wanted to launch with him because he is the one who built the platform that we are launching and pioneering a new business model for podcasts and for media in general. I have never been more excited about anything in my entire life. Like, literally. I feel like I'm in my dharma, in my reason for being. And I feel like this is going to be art that I can bring to you, to the world. That maybe nobody else is in the exact same position that can't. This is, uh, I've always thought that business systems were an underappreciated form of art. And that is what made me obsessed with media monetization models and the impact it has on sincerity and media. Which brings me to the next point. I am looking for a technical co-founder, someone who has built on substrate, knows substrate, or at least solidity has written smart contracts who understands tokenomics, economic ecosystems here and who cares deeply about finding a way to allow creators to monetize without advertising, to take the influence of advertising out of the monetization model, to take the influence of centralized systems out of the media. I'm going to be building a company called Stoa which I'm sure you'll start to hear a lot more about. But I need someone to help me do this. Well, if that's intriguing to you, shoot me an email at sky at modernstow.co. Let's talk. One extra thing. Um, we don't really talk about financial advice, but nothing in here is financial advice. It's for education. Um, we are not people who have any sort of ability to give financial advice. We do not have any legal authority over it. And if you get really excited about crypto with this, it is a, and you're not in it yet. It is a highly, 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 highly volatile space. Um, I've made mistakes. I've lost lots of money. Um, and do not go into this warily. Um, it's been a long-winded introduction, but without further ado, please listen, learn, 
get excited for this episode with Bruno Schwartz. See you today. All right, today on Sky King's Mental Playground, we have Bruno Schwartz, and just want to say welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Do you mind uh, diving into your background a little bit? Sure. Um, I um, used to be a Web2 developer. Actually, I started out as a Flash developer in, back in the old days, and um, that's still the, the best time of my development career to this day. Um, I then... Um, it's just something about the magical ability to tie animation to code in a very intuitive way that lets you interact with symbol by symbol without complicating things and uh, ship really, really fast in a very, very convenient way format for people to consume. So back then it was the Flash Player and browsers, um, but you could also up, uh, you could also export it as a standalone file that people could just run, and it would be interactive and. Uh, the file itself would contain the Flash player, so you could just run it on your desktop, which is amazing. Um, and it was just very intuitive, you know, like if you had like an animation or, or something, you would click on it and then you would apply code to that animation. And if you needed it to interact with another animation, you would just target that other animation. It's all very, very intuitive, very smooth. I, I uh, Sorry to interrupt, but I, I vaguely remember there being some dispute about like, Zuckerberg really thinking like the whole world was going to be built in Flash, or maybe it was Bill Gates or something. Why do you think Flash didn't win? Uh, because of Steve Jobs. Um, when 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 Jobs declared war on Flash, that was pretty much the, the death sentence right there. The his his um, you know like his clout was too big for for Flash to survive, and when he said that it needs to die, it needed to die. Um, there was no way around it. There were granted some vulnerabilities for the browser-based implementations that people were using. So the Flash Player in the browser was not exactly secure, and people were building some things that weren't supposed to be built with it. And mm-hmm. so, of course, when you you know try to build a rocket engine with uh, Coca-Cola bottles and Mentos, things go wrong. Um, but uh, generally, it was just you know S- Steve decided it had to go, so it had to go, and uh, it. Like it, it did go uh, from the browsers, but it stuck around as Adobe Animate, and um, it's just as awesome today as it was back then. So, um, only only much less used because it's no longer browser compatible. Sad, but yeah, good times, good times. Um, yeah, my first task was actually building a PDF reader in Flash for uh, this open open access company that was publishing scientific journals and books. Was, this was back before browsers had built-in PDF readers. So that was something that I, I learned on. And uh, later on, I, I moved into just general web development um, for a while. And um, r- right around the time I data-mined my happiness, so it was, I had like, I, I had been monitoring my mental state for a year or so and realized that I'm most miserable when doing JavaScript. And right around the time I had that epiphany, I found out about Ethereum and Solidity in general and um, figured like, okay, it's time for a change. And I dropped all of my JavaScript and web projects and dove headfirst into Ethereum just to learn about it for a year uh, before before doing anything concrete. And um, yeah, that the result of that was uh, Bedfalls, which was a website that I uh, created to 
basically get as many Web2 developers over to Web3 as possible. So I wanted to get as many of my ex-colleagues onto the blockchain train as I could. Um, moderate success there, but at least really good experience in terms of learning new things, building new things. Um, and so a few hundred tutorials later, uh, and, and a few dozen side projects later, finished and not finished, I was hired by Status to work on Nimbus as a technical writer on the Ethereum 2.0 client um, that went on for a year and change. Yeah, something like that. And uh, then I was hired by the Web3 Foundation to work on Polkadot and Kusama in almost the same capacity, so technical education, which basically comes comes down to copy-pasting knowledge from from some people's heads into other people's heads. Um, you're just the, the filter that translates that into more understandable content for the target audience. And um, and yeah, been there until the until June of this year. Um, but I started the Remark Protocol for NFTs while I was still at the Web3 Foundation. So I've been dual wielding jobs for uh, over a year now. Uh, I mean, I started in August and I stopped dual wielding in, in June. So, Okay. Uh, I love the data mind, my happiness. And obviously, like, you know, a lot of developers are very analytical. But to me, that I think like points to something very interesting about you. What what else, Any anything else you saw in there um, that made changes in your life? And two, why do you think JavaScript may be the most miserable? Um, it was, I, I, um, I don't think I saw much else in there. I, I was mainly monitoring my disposition when dealing with certain areas of work per day. So I was happiest when I was writing, um, because I could really get in the zone and, and, you know, crunch 2,000, 3,000 words in four to five hours of a, of a like really hands-on tutorial. And I really enjoyed that. Um, and JavaScript just made me miserable because it's a miserable language. Um, it, like insecure, clumsy, uh, memory hungry, CPU hungry, hack of a language that shouldn't ever be used for anything serious and somehow became the most used language in the world. Um, so it was constantly upsetting to, to fight it. Every step of the way, it was a fight. With JavaScript, um, every day a new framework, every day a new package manager, every day a new thing you had to learn from scratch, or you were, you know, tossed out to the to the garbage pile uh, with all the other uh, old school people who who couldn't learn anything new, and um, and that that was really frustrating. I really didn't feel like spending, you know, five days of every week learning a new tool, only to work on it two days and for it to be replaced by another one the next week. Um, it's really frustrating and the frustration didn't really help, didn't really subside when um, the frameworks started getting hungrier and hungrier. Like I used, I started with Angular and then as, as Angular's version, versions kind of progressed. So from one, two, three, four, and so on, um, it got hungrier and hungrier and hungrier and it took ever longer to load um, so something that was supposed to make lives easier was just making me wait and wait and wait and waste my time and waste my time. And so it just became so, so frustrating to develop anything in JavaScript with so many helper tools. Like I actively missed being able to just open Notepad on the desktop and build a website with just HTML and JavaScript in there, double click it and it works. But in this new era, in this new frustrating era, 
you had to like compile a JavaScript. That was like a joke. It felt like a parody where I had to compile JavaScript. But then, then came all the layers. You know, like you had to transpile, compile, recompile, then transpile that, and then minify that, and then include that, and then tree shake that to remove whatever you're not using. And so you had like 15 tools that you had to go through, and uh, the build cycles quickly approached. Like, you know, at this at this point, it's faster for me to compile a Rust project than it is to compile a JavaScript project. Have you have you thought? deeply about what makes something catch on and become embedded you know like if you like javascript which i heard a podcast with lex fridman and um i think brendan ike the founder the guy who wrote javascript mm-hmm. like did it for the first time in like a weekend and lex was pretty critical about javascript too but he was trying to be nice to him but it's like this guy did something you know in a weekend or a week and very haphazardly and then it took over the world or you look at you know bitcoin and how with you know without a company or a founder like going like deep into it, it just kind of slowly was adopted by like the world. So have you thought deeply about what, what does that, like what is the mind parasite that infects that just like means its way into the existence of the world? Yeah. It's just accessibility, um, developer experience basically. So it started out with, uh, the ability to use any machine you have to, to really quickly clone, modify a bit of code. And claim it as your own. Um, the just this ease of access is is most important because whatever you wrote could be run could be run immediately. With other languages, you didn't have such a such a privilege. Like you, if you used PHP or something, you had to have a server that would run PHP. But if you have a client side language, you can do miracles in the browser itself locally. And so this is the accessibility that made it incredibly popular because you could, uh, I think what's crucial for the success of such an environment or language is the fact that you end up with something that gets you a really fast feedback loop. So you can very quickly iterate on something and see that something's changing. You get, you, you ship insanely fast and that's really gratifying. It's, it's addictive. Um, because you can ship a prototype with JavaScript of anything in a day, like literally anything, and it doesn't matter that it's going to be garbage. That it doesn't matter it's going to be it's going to cause pain for fifty people two years down the line because of the tech debt. But you can feel great in that one day when you launched it and it got some popularity. And this is also especially important in a fast-moving world of just developing everything, where uh, shipping before the other guy can mean you know, the difference between success and bankruptcy or success and failure of a project. So this, this fast shipping, this fast iteration of JavaScript, I think, is what, what is its main success, which was hilariously undone with Node.js later on, but it was too late by then. Um, it was too entrenched in people's minds. People only knew JavaScript. And so if they only knew JavaScript, it made sense to also use it on the server. Uh, earlier you said that you, you know, initially were trying to through Bitfalls, teach a lot of different blockchain development. And you're, you know, going to your old peers and saying, like, come over to, to like, this side of the world, essentially. What what was, resi- like, what kind of resistance was felt there? How do developers look at people developing in the crypto space? Like, what's the adoption level? What are what, what kind of, like, arguments do they have in resistance to it? Um, the, the biggest barrier was convincing people why even to bother. Um, 
from people who come from the let's say western world and i i count like non non poor central europe among this uh they don't know what it's like to have something taken away from you that you take for, for granted and so there this threat doesn't exist in their mind mm-hmm. and so if it doesn't exist they can't appreciate the mitigation against that threat but the uh, the irony is that once it's taken away from them it is often too late and they can no longer return to the mitigation so they can no longer learn about the mitigating um thing that they could have used to prevent this situation from happening so the the biggest barrier is actually just teaching them like you know like from from the perspective of a web 2 developer who's used to something like amazon that's always available and and uh, very easy to use and you just deploy and you're you're always on somebody else's server it's like you you come to them and you tell them uh, here you go here's a really slow and expensive database that uh, might cost upwards of $100 per database write and if you want to read from it you have to run a 1 terabyte node a 1 terabyte piece of software on your computer that is always online um and so in a web developer's mind that's like what's wrong with you i'm going to just deploy on on a digital ocean droplet of $10 um i can just pull up a simple like SQLite database and put together two to five Node.js or PHP scripts and they'll do the exact same thing. And to them, it's not like they don't care about decentralization because they've never had anything centralized taken away from them. Mm-hmm. So to them, it's like, why bother? Right. And <clears throat> that was the biggest obstacle. The second biggest obstacle was uh, why would my user install a Chrome extension in order to be able to use my application when I can just make a templated username password login system that I have ready and, and reusable for all of my projects. So it's, it's a mix of being used to the old way and just not understanding the new way um, because it, it's not relatable to them. So when you were trying to convince people, was there, was there any, any, anything that allowed that you saw often allowed them to empathize with the idea that things can be taken away, that when something's hyper-centralized that it can be removed? No, it didn't really work. Um, I gloated a little bit whenever AWS went down. Um, <laughs> I, I teased them a bit when uh, TransferWise refused their transactions or closed their account without a warning um, just overnight with money still in it. I... Um, I told them about the merits of decentralization when PayPal locked their funds for six months, but ultimately none of those were deal breakers enough for them to become converts. So it's, it's very it's, interesting yeah. with, with COVID how, how I think a lot more people are, are coming online to this concept in, in the West, um, especially, but it, it, it's also, it's, it's odd because right now, basically anybody who gets kicked off of a podcasting platform or kicked off of Instagram, like they've made them appear to be like, quote unquote, Hitler. It's like, you are evil. You're like, and that's why you're being kicked off. So it's fine now for people. It's like, okay, <laughs> yeah. cool. That person's being removed. But I had one of my clients, uh, he's a podcaster. His name is Paul Saladino. He runs the fundamental health show and he has a company called heart and soil, which is like grass fed, grass finished, like organ meat supplements. 
and mm-hmm. uh, and he on a live mentioned COVID, and he wasn't like super aggressive about it, but that account was taken down. So that main vehicle for like you know monetizing their audience to sell the supplements just wiped out. They, they got it back a few days later, but it's little moments like those that people start to realize. You know, at first it was just Alex Jones being canceled, and that was fine, but like. like it's smooth. It's seeping across those lines, like very much. Oh yeah. When there's nobody left to come after, they'll come after you. And yeah. that's, that's how it works. Like you're always, somebody's always at the edge and getting trimmed off and the edge is just getting shorter. So uh, they do feel that, but then it's a matter of education and that's another barrier. So then you have something like, you know, I don't know, an artist getting kicked off of some art platform. And then they say, that's fine. I'll just go on flow for NFTs. And that's a matter of education as well. Like flow is not a decentralized blockchain that you can do anything on mm-hmm. um, that you want. Right. So I have to kind of preempt that entry, that onboarding with good education to direct them to blockchains that make sense. So you can see now the exodus of like every, every few year, every year, even there's a new blockchain that says we have a billion trillion, 11 trillion transactions per second. Um, and they're all free. And, uh, I don't know, you'll live forever if you use this blockchain. (laughs) And then, like people say, yes, of course, of course I'll go there. Like I can't pay a hundred dollars per per transaction on Ethereum, of course. So like this this blockchain is obviously better. And then what happens is everybody goes to Binance Smart Chain or everybody goes to Solana, and then those chains die. And why do they die? Because they run on two or three servers um, that are centrally controlled again. And then it's again like, how could a blockchain die? You said the blockchain was immortal. Um, so it's again a matter of like, even if you get them into this space, it takes a lot of time and effort to make them crypto native in a way that they understand where the priorities are. Even, even the like idealistic community of Ethereum is lost in many ways where like 90% of DeFi relies on one company that's called the graph. And if that goes down and it does from time to time, then all of DeFi just stops because all of their UIs rely on it. Um, everybody's reading data from Infura. Nobody's running their own nodes, even after so many outages have been uh, like witnessed over the past few years. So even there, it's, it's not not ideal. And then you know, like decentralization here is a is a spectrum in a way, and it's it's an uphill battle to get people to understand the priorities and what's actually important in all of this. So it's, it's not easy. Where, where can people start to like really, really go deep into an understanding of this? <laughs> That's a good question. I would say read things like Mastering Ethereum, Mastering Bitcoin, but those are books and people don't read books anymore. Um, I honestly don't know. I have no idea who I would send them to that wouldn't also try to sell them something. Mm. That's kind of weird and disturbing. It is one of the downfalls of this space is that 
anybody who's on a certain chain or has a certain token has like a deep incentive to get more people onto that chain or have that certain token. So that is like a a downfall of this for sure. Yeah. Well, I I can't, I can't say that however, with, with like reasonable certainty that no chain will ever be more decentralized and and economically secure than Ethereum. Mm. Um, So when in doubt, go with Ethereum always. Um, and I can say this because I have tokens of a lot of different chains, so I could benefit from advertising any of them, but I'm, I'm telling you go to Ethereum. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so looking at what do you think Polkadot and the Kusama, like Kusama Polkadot side of the world is trying to do that's different than Ethereum and where do you see it being successful versus like versus Ethereum? Um, where, where Ethereum is a layer one chain that processes all transactions equally. So if you buy a 50 cent cup of coffee, the same level of mining security processes that transaction as another transaction that is being used to verify seven tons of gold. Um, on any real usage, that's not scalable. You can't expect Starbucks to implement Ethereum-based payments and then at the same time expect serious companies and enterprises to use Ethereum for verification because they'll never get their turn on-chain. Somebody's going to never get their turn. Mm. Um, So what Polkadot and Kusama are doing is they're, uh, they're doing two things. One is they're scaling through specificity in that they're allowing different chains to connect to each other that are application-specific. So they have uh, a central chain called a relay chain where you have other chains connecting to it. But the validators of that central chain, so these these quasi-miners of that relay chain, they secure all the other connected chains. That means that any chain that connects to Kusama or Polkadot is inheriting this shared security, which is kind of a big deal because a chain that's brand new and very application-specific doesn't have to build its own validator community from scratch. This is a known problem in the blockchain space in general where you dilute the security of every chain by forcing every chain to find its own validator community. Because by definition, some experienced validators will pursue better returns and stop validating one chain in order to validate another chain that gives them better returns. But if you make them all share one set of validators, then you make the whole system much more secure as more value is locked into these these validators. So what you get is a whole lot of different heterogeneous chains, which means that they can have really application-specific functionality. So if you want a Starbucks chain, you can have a Starbucks chain. And that Starbucks chain really, really, really processes coffee transactions like a, like a champ. Um, but it can connect to the Kusama ecosystem or the Polkadot ecosystem and just, just do that. And so if there's another chain that just processes tons of gold, that chain is no longer bothered by the coffee transactions. And it can do its thing really well. And so you get these specific chains that are nonetheless connected and talking to each other through Kusama or Polkadot. So Polkadot and Kusama are layer zero chains that connect layer one chains. And the other thing they do is they connect existing layer one chains to each other as well. So you can connect Ethereum to all of these other chains that are connected to Kusama or Polkadot. And you can basically, the way way it works is any chain that connects to Kusama or Polkadot is 
growing the feature set of itself and other chains exponentially because they all share those feature sets then. So like in Ethereum, you have the, the way to pull Bitcoin into Ethereum through certain bridges where you send Bitcoin into a custody account and then some custodian mints a synthetic version of Bitcoin on Ethereum and then you use that Bitcoin. And when you're ready to unlock your Bitcoin, you burn the synthetic Ethereum on Ethereum, uh, the synthetic Bitcoin on Ethereum, and then your real Bitcoin is unlocked on the other end. This bridge needs its own incentive layer. It needs its its kind of gatekeepers. It needs its validators to keep working. And this is just a one-to-one bridge, Bitcoin to Ethereum. So if somebody builds a Litecoin to Ethereum bridge, that's probably going to need its own set of validators. And so again, you're diluting things. But a Kusama or Polkadot they're acting like many-to-many bridges. So by connecting a chain to Kusama or Polkadot, you're automatically connected to everybody else who's already connected there. And you don't have to build your own validator set. And that's the selling point. You get get this shared security and native ability to communicate between the chains, uh, but the chains don't need to be equal. This is in contrast to Ethereum, where with Ethereum 2.0, when it launches, all the shards, all the little Ethereums that will branch off of the main Ethereum, they will all be identical EVM chains, which means that they will have the same functionality that Ethereum has. And so if you want something optimized, something really specific, like a Starbucks coffee chain, it's going to be very inefficient at doing what it does. Um, Because a general purpose machine is a jack of all trades and the master of none. And so you're not optimized for anything other than transfers of the native currency, which is Ether, right? So that that's the main advantage. And in many ways, Polkadot kinda offers what Ethereum 2.0 promised. So it offers a sharded experience. So these shards, only in this case, these shards are have a different runtime, different virtual machine. Whereas on Ethereum, all the shards will have will all be Ethereum virtual machines. And that's that's the main difference. They are both proof of stake. They both have shared security, um, but you know, Polkadot has these heterogeneous shards and Ethereum has the homogeneous shards. And that's, I think, the key the key difference there. And would you say that that, back to what we were talking about earlier with JavaScript, is that something that increases the accessibility of Polkadot? Um, no. Uh, to build something application-specific, like an application-specific chain on Polkadot, you have to be not only an expert in Rust as the language, but also an expert in Substrate, which is the framework built on top of Rust and powering Polkadot, Kusama, and all these connecting chains. These are really hard to get into. They are hard in a good way in that you need to actually be a good developer to master them and start building. So you're pretty much guaranteed to not develop unsafe stuff on it because you already know what you're doing by then. But this is also what makes uh, developer uptake really slow and hard on Polkadot, where it is not easy to get started with this at all. Um, and the, the admittedly, the resources leave something to be desired. So it could be improved. The developer experience could definitely be improved. The new developer docs, tutorials, a focus on uh, you know less less shipping of non-essential stuff, and more updating of docs, tutorials, demos, and so on. So this is something that I think is is missing 
from Polkadot while it still doesn't have the a crazy enthusiastic community of Ethereum. Ethereum right now is in many ways like JavaScript. Solidity is very similar to JavaScript. And uh, whenever somebody builds something, you can be pretty sure that a ton of people are immediately going to build something on top of it. And they can do this because not only is, uh, not only because there's, there's so many of them, but also because it's so easy to build new contracts uh, in Solidity. And it's so easy to build on top of other people's stuff. And in Polkadot, it is not easy. It is definitely not easy. Um, and it needs a lot of documentation before it becomes easy. So that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the key difference there. Okay. If you were going to, if someone had no experience in development, but they were really passionate, had the time, wanted to learn Rust, would you recommend they go Solidity Rust, JavaScript Solidity Rust? Like what would be the path to learning? Uh, I guess it depends on how much experience they have from before. In programming, if if so if at all possible, a zero. Oh, zero. Yeah. oh yeah, I I don't think you can go to Rust from zero. Okay. Um, but I don't think you should go from JavaScript to Rust uh, either, because JavaScript is like uh, working with JavaScript is like working with uh, like building houses out of out of cooked spaghetti, and then <laughs> and then you're you're. And the next, and the next day, you're you're driven to a construction site and given raw cement and some water, and a mixer and told to build a skyscraper. So it's not these skills don't translate. The JavaScript does not have type safety or any safety at all. Um, it is it is not like doesn't even can't even handle big integers in in any reasonable way. So just typing out a, a big number in Rust will break JavaScript. Um, it's not something that you can, you can translate. I would say that you should maybe, uh, work with something like Python first, um, in terms of languages, then the better Python than, than JavaScript to, as an, as an on-ramp into Rust. But with Python, you're going to be fairly useless, uh, in terms of blockchain for, for, for relatively a long time. There is a, like, if you want to build uh, Ethereum stuff with Python-like syntax. There is this Brownie thing, Brownie framework for building, and this this resembles uh, Python. And um, actually, that's a that's a like a development suite for uh, Viper developed uh, Viper developed contracts. And Viper is a Python-like language that is an alternative to Solidity. So Solidity is like JavaScript in Ethereum, hmm. and Viper is like Python in Ethereum. Okay. And so, if you want to start, you should start with with Python and maybe Viper. And then move on to then move on to Rust, um, yeah, yeah. But then again, like if you have any kind of technical chops, you can just go through a few courses, basic courses of Rust or the Rust book or or both, preferably both, and then sign up for the Substrate Developer Academy. That's a program that happens, I think, four times a year, um, where you are taken through everything that you need to know. To develop pallets for these chains, so you'll be able to build your own custom chains after you're going through this course. Um, you're not going to be an expert at it, but you will have the basics you need to 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 build on it yourself. So this is pretty good. That's awesome. All right, so bit of a left turn here, but you seem to approach things very systematically uh, just from the research that I've done. One of those has been your health journey. Can you start with like? Last year, you did this endomorphs journey to health. You know, what was the initiative for that? What is an endomorph versus the other uh, body forms? And go from there. 
Yeah. Um, so there are like I ha- I've had I've had weight problems since like forever because um, I I tend to lose and gain weight really quickly and that skewing skewing more towards gain um, <laughs> and and sitting for for a long period of time per day um, doesn't really help there like you you tend to to start taking on the computer guy shape very quickly and in general there are three archetypes three body types that people can be and that's endomorphs mesomorphs and ectomorphs and ectomorphs are usually tall and lanky and have a very hard time getting fat on them so those are the thin people that you see that that just can't get can't gain weight and more often than not, they will actually have back pain um, because their upper body is so tall and so long that their lower body is struggling to to keep it upright because of a lack of muscle and mass. Um, mesomorphs are the perfect middle. They can become anything. So they can become anything from fat to Olympian perfection. Um, their body is entirely malleable and it reacts perfectly well to input. So if you just spend two years eating sugar, then you will become a sugary blob. But if you spend two years moderately ex- exercising, you will look like Adonis. Um, and then there's endomorphs for us who drew the short end of the stick, uh, short and stubby usually. And we tend to like gain two pounds if we step in a puddle of oil. Um, fat is drawn to us like venom to Spider-Man. It's something that is very difficult to escape. And it's something that um, you have to be kind of wary of at all times. I, in particular, really like sweet stuff. So being an endomorph who really likes sweet stuff and is programming a lot is not not something that, that is a good combination. Um, so I, uh, I kind of gained a lot of weight two years ago again. Um, I've, I fluctuate between 70 kilos and 100 kilos. Um, and this changes year on year, so from one extreme to the other. And I, I, I got up to the 100 range again uh, two years ago, and so I decided to, to change that again. And since, for, the, for the past six or seven years, I've been doing um, uh, work walking, where I walk on the treadmill while I work. And I have a, a custom-built table for my treadmill where I just put, put the keyboard and mouse and everything and the monitor is wall mounted. And so walking while working is, doesn't really take much effort. Um, you get used to it in like a week. It's, it's, it's totally fine. You can type, you can use the mouse. I can even game, um, on, on the treadmill. It's, it's really not hard. Uh, just use the low volume. And if you can, if you can, you, you use an incline, um, to spend more calories and just four hours a day on a treadmill when you're overweight and at something like a, a really leisurely three kilometers an hour uh, will burn around 1,600 calories. And 1,600 calories is more than the maintenance amount of most people. Um, endomorphs have a maintenance amount of around, around 1,800 to 200, depending on your, to, two, to, to 2,000, depending on your weight and, and height and so on. So you can essentially get a free day of food 
by spending four day, four hours a day on a treadmill uh, working. And what, another bonus of that is that when you're walking and working, the lizard part of your brain is occupied by the walking. And so it's not that easy to get distracted and sidetracked by uh, procrastination when you're working on a treadmill. And so I found that my most productive coding sessions, for example, were actually on the treadmill. Um, the, so I, I use this. Uh, okay. I, of course, I had to augment this because I, was, I wanted to lose weight really quickly. So I had to get back in shape really quickly. Uh, and so I, I augmented this with some intermittent fasting, um, lots of water, lots of VR exercise, um, some running and so on. And so I managed to lose, lose all my weight in five months. Um, I was back from 100 kilos to 70 kilos in five months. Um, but then I started the Remark project and with uh, five to six calls per day, you can't really be on the treadmill anymore. And uh, yeah, gained almost all of it back. So now I'm, um, I just had my birthday three, three days ago. So my 37th year is going to be health focused and I'm going to get back in shape. Um, and so it continues, the cycle continues. Every, every year I, I go to one end of the stick and then the year after I go to the other. <laughs> so what's the, what's the plan this time? Like, what have you learned from the last years? Like, what is your, what's your going to be your plan of attack? Also happy. Um, I am going to not work out like a terrorist this time. Uh, last time I would strap on a 40 pound vest on me, um, walk on that at a 15% incline and work like that. Um, not very comfortable. And last time I kind of overdid it with also doing pull-ups and push-ups a hundred per day. Um, and also, uh, running and walking the dog with that vest as well. And also wearing it and ankle weights when I was doing VR workouts. So this is really, really good for muscles and for losing weight quickly. And you would, I would burn like 6,000 calories per day actively. So not starving myself at all. Um, but it's like, it really tires you out. Um, it's not, you can't really do much else. Uh, you're, you, just, you just work out like a maniac. So I, I don't want to do that. I'm going to take it a little bit slower. So intermittent fasting, I'll try to, so my, just what happens that just as the calls died down a little bit, my treadmill died. And so now that's a huge problem. Um, I have to, I have to get a better treadmill um, and get, get back on it uh, at least six hours per day. So six hours per day on the treadmill is doable and it wastes you like two, 2000 plus calories per day. And that's, that's more than enough for most people, especially if you're intermittent fasting. So you don't need to kill yourself. Um, and in eight months you can easily lose like 15 kilos without a problem, like without a problem at all. No, no issue in the world, even with, with a cheat day, um, even as an endomorph. So I'm going to take it a little bit easier. Um, maybe, Maybe see my family a little more this time, <laughs> uh, and uh, and try not to not to bounce back uh, after I reach my goal. I definitely think there's something to that. The when you're saying like your, the lizard brain of your or the part of your, the lizard part of your brain is is oriented around walking. Like I've found whenever I use a treadmill desk, I do tend to be a lot more like creative and happier as I'm working. Yeah, yeah, and it it just yeah it just the 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 part of me that tends to wander off and you know want to type something into YouTube and find the latest pitch meeting or whatever mm -hmm. um, 
will not be there when I'm when I'm on the treadmill. It's just like I'm walking and suddenly like I've walked two hours and I've coded like you know like seven different files of five thousand lines of code. It's wow, that worked. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you uh so VR cardio? What made you yep. go down like that route as another option? And where do you think about VR in general? I'm a big fan of VR. I've been in VR since Oculus pushed out the basic versions like who knows how long ago. Um, yeah, I, like I, I'm a big fan of metaverses and generally just gaming. And so VR is a natural extension to me, <coughs> especially now that it went cordless. Um, really no limits to, to what we can do. It's really, really fantastic. I enjoy it a lot. And it's really effective. Um, you know, especially if you strap on some weights, like you can really tire yourself out. Uh, there are some apps that will just absolutely murder you. That, you know, you're going to have to sit down for like 20 minutes after, after a workout like that. Um, so it's really, really effective, really easy. They, 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 like you, you need a really small area to, to work with, but they can really t- like take it all out of you. Uh, cause they they can be really optimized for that experience. So, all of this, like interactivity and everything, I'm, I'm I'm a big fan of just being, you know, in in that space and and having all of that stimulation around me. It's really fantastic, and also it's it's pretty good for like immersive games and stuff. I I enjoy that a lot, uh, especially in this time of COVID. Like just being able to meet up with a friend in a virtual pool joint and play, you know, play pool. Um, it's been really really fun. Um, not to mention the the various like I, I almost regret the hours I spent flying in Elite Dangerous um, in VR. Like it's yeah I I yeah there's there's about a two dozen games on my Steam profile that are just waiting to be played in VR. Interesting. Do you okay? Where do you see VR meeting with? the decentralized metaverses and where do you see kind of the elephant in the room of Facebook getting in the way of that or supporting it? Um, in, in terms of blockchain and metaverses, uh, I don't see them as too connected. It's like, it's more like, um, you have Decentraland and well, you have only Decentraland and, um, it's really cool that you can go into an app and see your avatar as um, equipped into the items that you own. And that that's fantastic. But it's not... Like that metaverse is running on a centralized platform and it's not immune to downtime. And so if that team disappears, that metaverse disappears. It's not a true metaverse. Um, it's, a, it's a really convenient method of reading the blockchain in a really, in a really fun way. But it's not a metaverse in terms of like it's going to be around forever and we can meet in this whenever we want. So I don't see them as merging per se. And I don't, I don't know what it would take for them to properly merge. Somebody would have to make a real decentralized metaverse thing that you can somehow run locally only. And I don't know how to make it impervious to attacks and, and IP blocks and, and whatever else. So the dream of having a, you know, 
um, Ready Player One universe that doesn't succumb to to government influence or censorship. I don't know how to do that yet, um, due to the overwhelming hardware demands that that would have to be put on to these different nodes to run this in a decentralized way. I'm sure somebody's going to pull it off eventually, but right now, the current metaverses are just fun ways of reading your NFT balances. And that's fun enough for me for now. Um, yeah. What was the other thing you asked? Uh, the other part was, if like, do you see Facebook being an issue to making that happen? Um, no, not really. Um, I mean, Facebook's in the data selling business, and I've long been of the opinion that you don't avoid people spying on you or people selling your data by hiding it. You do it by leading a dual life. So you you keep everything you want to expose in one profile that you give them and let them sell it. And everything else you keep private in something that nobody else knows about. Um, there's no other way. You will be discovered one way or the other. So might as well give them a, you know, like a fake ish identity. Like your public persona is your public persona and you can, you can sell that. You can let them sell that, but keep your truly private stuff private. There's, I don't think there's another way. And, um, currently given the experience they provide, I will let them, um, Oculus is that good. Quest is that good that I feel like my life would be significantly less cool without it. If, you know, I didn't let them sell Ubisoft the information that I like one of their games. But that is also the only information they have that I gave them. I'm sure they have much more information that they harvested illegally. But in terms of information I gave them, that's all they have because that I only have an Oculus profile, nothing else, and they see my gaming history there, which is fine. Please recommend games like I've played a lot before because I like them. Let's do it. Um, so I don't see that as being much of an issue. Um, not at all. Uh, if anything, uh, a fast evolution of a really good uh, user experience in terms of virtual reality will only spur more competition from other companies or even open source projects to outdo them. And I think competition in this space will do everybody a lot of good. Yeah, did you see that Apple, like, there's some leak about AR, VR glasses for Apple? No. Yeah, it was, it was like last week. They think that there's been like three different estimations of time. So either this September or 2022 or 2025, they're expecting to do uh, v- AR glasses. Apple? Apple, yeah. AR or VR or both? AR, AR glasses. Well, cool if they do. Um, I don't know how much you, I, I don't know how much utility that would see. I mean, I would definitely use them. I, I, I'm all for cybernetically enhancing myself, like pull out my healthy eye or replace it with a cybernetic one. I don't care. Do it. Um, but I don't know how much, you know, the, the regular folk, the, the muggles would use this. Um, it's like, you know, I can't see my parents wearing, uh, uh, an AR 
set on their head. What what for? Um, it's like I would like even even the Gen Zers. Like what what are they going to do? Watch TikTok? Uh, even like my kind, <laughs> we'd be we'd be looking at crypto prices all day in the corner of our eye. It's like. Yeah. It's not something that, like, I can imagine some really cool use cases where we meet up and maybe shoot each other in AR on a on an open market in the in the in the city, uh, like like kids with laser tag only taken to another level, and that's that's cool. Um, somehow I don't see it happening. Like the the dream that um, who was it? The what was that other AR company that just that tried to to sell us on some shooter? Magic Leap. So mm-hmm. the, the the thing that they try to sell us on, if that ever becomes a reality, great. I don't think so, though. Um, we're going to be dealing with a lot of uh, problems in like just visual artifacts and not being able to see well in, in high brightness outside. Um, the glasses falling down as you run with them, batteries running out, uh, connection being lost and and whatever else, or just plain being mugged when they see it on you. Um, And I think a lot of that has actually to do, which is kind of off topic, but not really, with the fact that the U.S. Army patented the way to project images onto your uh, lens, onto your eye directly. Um, And this is why we have all those crappy AR glasses where you just project something onto a a glass prism in front of you Mm -hmm. rather than directly onto your eye. and I think the yeah the real progress is going to come when that patent expires or or they let it you know be used in the open. Um, then it's going to be fun. But as it is, I don't see us. I don't see a lot of us looking at a glass, you know, square in the corner of our eye. We'll see. Yeah, I didn't know that the U.S. Army did it. That's really interesting. Yeah, they they patented it if I remember correctly for uh, for use in, in 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 fighter jets or something, so that uh, the HUD is projected onto pilot eyes um, instead of the the you know the windshield or whatever you call it, the cockpit yeah, yeah, yeah. glass. Wow, what do you what do you see the role of art in our culture, and what do you think about it as like a early use for blockchain? Hmm. Yeah, I'm torn on that. Like, it depends on the art, I guess. Um, pretty fed up with the static images, NFTs. Um, I I like that it gives artists who have historically been underpaid for their talent a way to earn money that they deserve. And I like it for that, but I don't know. It feels like a waste of resources in a lot of ways where we have all of these, it's like a factory, like everything, like people are printing everything and like it started out well and with interesting projects, but now that you have people, you know, this I don't know. It's just art is kind of subjective, I guess. And I would never agree that, for example, Ether rocks as art. Um, I would be torn on 
CryptoPunks. I don't think those are art either. And a lot of things like this, I don't think are, are art. And I think maybe NFTs are overused for, for the static art thing. I'd rather see some more innovation, some, something else being done, um, than more images being put online. It's not just, it, it's gotten out of hand, I think. Um, mm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like any kind of use that's applied through the blockchain, but this, this is maybe a bit too much even for me. Hmm. Yeah, it seems uh pretty pretty crazy right now. Like things yeah. are getting pretty insane. You can like I am fighting the urge to launch a garbage PFP project every day. Yeah. <laughs> like no, like knowing knowing solidity is a curse in this case because you fight the urge to scam people constantly it's not like it's not even a scam it's just like you know that you're launching something of low effort and low quality and it's gonna go off the shelves yeah and it just at that point it just starts to feel like 2017 again Mm -hmm. for sure so do you feel like at some level the nft space right now as it is especially on the kind of like low effort is the ico era of 2017 like is that what we're going through right now yeah like yeah 95 percent of all of those pfp projects are going to die never to be liquid again Mm -hmm. this is a game of musical chairs that a lot of influencers are playing with their followers and I don't really like it. Wow. So where do you view what you guys are building on Remark in this space? What is Why does it need to exist? Well, we were frustrated with the staticness of Ethereum's NFTs and wanted to give NFTs power to do more. So when we set out to build the, the NFT Legos, we tried to come up with the most complicated use case we can imagine and build that natively with our smart contracts so that other people could build it as well by putting these Legos together. And we came up with a system of reusable Legos, reusable parts that you can put together that are mutually compatible. And like, for example, a lot of NFTs on Ethereum are simple images because they really cannot be more. If you take into consideration the Ethereum standards, ERC721, ERC1155, they are well-established, but they're also extremely comfortable to marketplaces and they don't want to move away from them. And so if you build an NFT project that does anything more than represent an image online, then every user of that project depends on your UI, depends on your implementation. And if you go, then your project goes, your functionality goes. And if anybody loads your NFT, even if under the hood it supports ERC721, but then builds on top of it, whatever it builds on top will not be visible or usable in a marketplace like OpenSea. 
And this is because all the marketplaces on Ethereum went with the lowest common denominator, and that's the most popular standards there are. So that's the ERC721 and ERC1155. And that makes sense. That's rational. That's economically rational. That's cool. But it also prevents innovation. And what we did with Remark is we wanted to build standards that are not complicated or opinionated by themselves so that we don't really target one specific project. But we wanted to have components that you can then use to compose any project of any complexity. And yet any UI that supports these very basic building blocks will automatically be compatible with all of your features. So whatever super advanced scenario you come up with and build it with Remark, any UI that supports the Remark standards already supports it. So you can go wild. And you can really innovate on this front in in what's what's buildable with like when you when you let your imagination run wild. Um yeah. So yeah, we wanted to evolve the space and move away from static images into um let's say eternally liquid NFTs that have forward forward compatibility with as of yet unknown projects. And this is interesting because you get NFTs that can be applied to projects that will appear five, 10, 10 years down the line um, without the owners of the projects having to know, know each other. And um, we do this by, by introducing five building blocks. Uh, the first one is NFTs being able to own other NFTs and subsequently equip other NFTs. And when they equip them, they change their, the parent's appearance. Um, NFTs being multi-resource, which means you can have an ebook NFT that has one resource as an audiobook, another is a PDF file, another is a cover file. And if you load it into Audible, it'll play. If you load it into Kindle, it'll show you the PDF. If you load it into OpenSea, it'll show you the cover. Another is on-chain emotes, where you send reactions to NFTs. And this is a great social mechanic where people emote on each other's NFTs, send poop emojis, thumbs up emojis, and so on. But it's also an, a great price discovery me- mechanism where you can tell that an NFT is relatively more valuable than another one that looks just like it purely by the emotes that it received. Um, we also have conditional rendering, which lets you react to on-chain and off-chain parameters like if I have Mona Lisa um, and I send her 50 kissy emojis, then I can tell it to show a blushing Mona Lisa instead. Um, and then there's also the, the cookie-cutter uh, fungibilization of NFTs that is very popular today, only in this case. So in Ethereum, you, you split an NFT into fungible tokens in order to be able to gamble on the NFT. Um, in Remark, you split an NFT into fungible tokens in order to govern it as a DAO. Because an NFT here can do much more and can issue commands to its children or interact with the space around it, you can do that as a community. And so if you have um, an NFT that you govern as a community, then you can issue these commands as a community. So you can imagine a Twitch streamer who uh, fungibilizes his NFT uh, in-game character and then you as a community who have those tokens, you guys vote on the loadout of that character before a raid or a game or something. And you are participating actively in a gaming stream or something like that. So um, 
a lot of these Legos, they're independent and projects can pick what they want to implement, but they, they fit together really well. And so you can put them all together to come up with really wild combinations of projects. So <clears throat> I think the thing that initially like drew me to the project was this concept of like the NFT Legos, or, like NFTs owning NFTs and being able to build on top of them. And I loved the kind of one minute video you guys put together of a, some sort of like metaverse where people could go and then, you know, own the plot of land, build their world on top of that, and then, you know, have a billboard for like community of stuff going on. How do you, what do you see as like the use cases that you would be most excited about for this specifically? For, for the metaverse? Yeah. Um, we actually have plans to build this. And the first, the first kind of version of it would be a Haba hotel like environment where people can just hang out, chat, um, and see each other's avatars, trade items, equip items, and so on. Later on, we do have plans to introduce crafting so that you can craft your own items and equipables and smelt um, and, and you know, take apart the items that you already have um, to build an item economy. Right now, we have enabled trading on our prototype app where people are already trading items that, that are equipable by the, the NFT birds that we launched. But later on, we want to make that like a whole universe. Um, generally, I want this to move in a direction less 3D metaversy and more Stardew Valley-like metaversy, where it is more intuitive to mobile interfaces, to uh, browsers, and to people who are just used to these um, farm-well-like environments, so the ultra-casuals. Uh, I want this metaverse to be non-scary. Um, I want the user interface to say item instead of NFT. I want to make it all seem familiar and comfortable rather than scary and crypty. And so this is what we're, we're, we're working towards slowly as a very comfortable metaverse experience where you are um, not immersing yourself completely, but it's an extension of you and your avatar in a parallel virtual economy and the virtual world um, much more like a game than an alternative life of your own. Um, this is something that, that I want to build because I think we, we are reaching some kind of a saturation point with 3D uh, first-person metaverses mm -hmm. and we'll see which one of those survives. But I don't, I don't see many of them working on um, really user-friendly, top-down or isometric game-like experiences where you can augment the the world with NFTs that you buy and um, plots of land you own and, and so on. So this is something that really interests me. Yeah, I think prioritizing it being mobile friendly is absolutely crucial. And I don't think there's enough stuff going on in, in blockchain in general that thinks about it that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of, there's a lot of assumptions that people are just behind their desktop, they have MetaMask installed, and then they can get into the metaverse. But in fact, like, you know, I might be on a train and I want to tune in and just check out, check in with the environment, buy some NFT items, maybe spiffy out my, my house and display some of my NFT paintings on my walls or whatever. Um, and you can do that on a mobile device. And with a good drag and drop interface, it can very much resemble a very simple and easy to play game that, that everybody can, can feel comfortable in. How are you guys thinking about Remark for Polkadot and when that comes online? 
by the time Polkadot has parachains, we will have pallets. And so Remark will be in, immediately available on Polkadot through all of those chains that will integrate our pallets. So uh, while Remark right now is deployed as kind of a hack on top of Kusama, because Kusama doesn't have smart contracts, um, by the time Polkadot has parachains, it will be a native solution available through partner chains that have um, committed to adding our logic to them. Okay. How do you think about governance? Of? Of, so like in the, so if we're going about like how blockchain, how Bitcoin handles governance versus how Ethereum handles governance versus how Polkadot and Kusama have kind of built up their government system, governance system. Um, right. So in, in Bitcoin, it's an oligarchy where you basically have the board of Blockstream uh, deciding where which direction to take the chain in. Um, and Bitcoin is kind of the definition of the Shirky principle where um, the, you know, like the solution to a given problem will never kill the problem because it kills itself. So um, Blockstream is that thing. So if Blockstream sells us, Blockstream sells the workaround to Bitcoin's problems and controls the development of solutions to Bitcoin's problems. And so to them, this is like Bitcoin is 100% a corporation chain and that's, that's, that's all there is to their governance. This is why it hasn't moved in a decade, basically, in, in terms of features. Uh, for Ethereum, there's no governance at all. It's mainly shouting over, over Reddit and Twitter, which in a way is good because it ossifies and makes change really hard. Um, so wild swings in, in feature changes are not, not exactly common. But it also prevents rational discourse and proper stakeholder in, involvement. Um, often those who are most invested are quiet and those who are loudest have the least stake. And so that there's a distortion of, of voting power, especially as counted by, you know, number of Twitter retweets. Um, so that's kind of weird on Ethereum. Um, and I think that the EIP process has become too bureaucratic because just two weeks ago, they tried to add royalties into the NFT standards. And those are two optional fields that marketplaces can, but do not have to respect because you can't enforce royalties on chain. It's always voluntary. And two optional fields took three years to get it. Um, three years to discuss two optional fields is it's not my idea of progress. And it, this is one big reason why Remark would never have been possible in Ethereum, um, as, at least not in a standardized way, because we'd never make it into the standards um, at that speed. So I think Ethereum's governance is um, tricky. It's good that good people are at the top and are leading the development because those are truly cream of the crop people, like both in, in like in just attitude and their nature, but also the quality of the code and math they produce. It's like you, you cannot find smarter people in the world anywhere um, than if you put the leadership of Ethereum together in a room. It's amazing, and it's 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 a huge it's the pure luck that it turned out that way. Um, so this is why Ethereum 2.0 is actually progressing. Um, if there weren't such 
decisive and clever people at, at, at leading it. Um, I imagine that the miners would have put a halt to the proof of stake migration uh, a while back. So that's pretty good. But I do wish it was more efficient and faster sometimes. Um, and Polkadot and Kusama are DAOs in their own right, which is really cool as an experiment. And so far, worked out well, because those who lead it have had the best interest of the chain at heart. However, I'm not sure it's that resistant if that flips. Um, so far, it's really good that, for example, Kraken wanted what's best for Polkadot. But in Polkadot, to push through a runtime upgrade, you need to vote on the runtime upgrade. And you can lock up your tokens to augment your voting power. And if you vote with 1x, so no augmentation, just one token, one vote, you lock your tokens for one voting period. On Polkadot, that's 28 days. On Kusama, that's seven days. But you can also vote with zero conviction. And if you vote with zero conviction, you vote with 10% of your power. For the vast majority of people, this basically discards their voting power. For an exchange, however, which has millions of tokens, they can outvote a lot of people even with 10% of their vote. And so what they can do is they can vote on any decision with no lockup and still have more votes than the entire body of voters that came out and the entire turnout and have tokens fully unlocked to dump them immediately if they want to. This has not been a problem until now, but I, I expect that it might become one sometime in the future. And so I would, if I was in charge of it, I would remove the zero lockup voting, for example. Hmm. Um, there's, a, there's other stuff that I don't like in, in Polkadot and Kusama's governance, but by and large, it's better, in my opinion, way better than no governance because things are actually moving. In Ethereum, you have this problem where it takes a lot of effort to get people to agree on something and to make a change on the chain, you have to do a hard fork. And so obviously hard forks need a lot of effort because you have to somehow track down all the people who are block producers to get them to upgrade their nodes. In a pseudonymous network like Ethereum, it's not easy to track down these people and let them all know that they need to replace a piece of software. And so this is why in Ethereum, a lot of big and small upgrades are bundled into huge upgrades that have names like the London hard fork, where you get all of these changes at once because if you were doing them piecemeal, like change by change, it would take forever. And so this is why they're often bundled into huge upgrades. And this is also why these hard forks are always kind of controversial in some, in some circles, because a lot of things are getting in at the same time. And so if you're against only one of those, you have no way to signal that you're only against that. Mm. You can't really hard fork your way with just that because somebody else might be hard forking with another just that. And so it's really difficult to kind of, you know, reject a single change. Um, whereas in Polkadot, every change 
no matter how minor, can be uploaded to the chain and voted on. And this is because in Polkadot, when you upload this WebAssembly blob that you compile from building a new version of the node, when it's voted into the chain, the chain will just take it and apply it immediately. Uh, like, not immediately, but after a period of when it was voted in. So if, if, if the community votes it in, the chain will just take it and replace its code with that new code. And it's it's like a car replacing its engine mid-drive, and it just it keeps rolling. Um, and this is why in Polkadot with these hard with these forkless upgrades, the up the the updates can be much more granular, much smaller, much more specific to the change that you need to see, and they're, therefore they are easier to to refuse to reject if you if you're against them. Um, so this this I like very very much. Um, this I think is a is a very good decision, but. Yeah, the balance of power needs to kind of dilute a little bit and needs to, um, yeah, some changes need to happen on that front uh, to make it truly invulnerable. For now, it's been working really, really well. Over 100 runtime upgrades, flawlessly executed. Uh, bugs ironed out really, really quickly. A very active council that reacts quickly to emergency situations. R- really good stuff. We've always fixed things very, very fast. Um, but yeah, could be could be better, but yeah, I I will go on the record and say that Polkadot and Kusama governance is the best we have in any blockchain out there right now. It sounds like there is this like very human issue that we keep running into, which is like if if we rely on a benevolent king or this like imbalanced power, and as long as they're you know benevolent, it's good. But all it takes is you know, um, forget like the horrible. Uh, the horrible uh, Caesar, what's his name? Like NATO, whatever. I don't know. Um, okay, it only takes like one, you know, Nero. Nero, yeah. It only takes one Nero to come in and just level everything when you have that imbalance of power. That is, yeah, that's one of the concerns. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think Gav would ever turn on Polkadot or Kusama, but the fact is that he can, and he can single-handedly destroy them. Right? Yeah. Um, so uh, for now, we've had like we've had huge luck with it. Um, it's like, I mean, if you look at it that way, Linus could destroy Linux. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's been running it for like 20 plus years and it's been good. Maybe not good towards some individuals, but it's been very good to the project. Um, it's exactly the same with, with Polkadot. So I don't think that's something to worry about. If anything, it's, it's positive because um, like, I don't think Gav could turn evil towards the chain. I, I think he would be, uh, I think he's actually good as a, as a benevolent dictator for life here because he's the best one to, he's the best equipped to defend against attacks against mm-hmm. it because he can rally the troops really quickly. And if something needs to be voted down or voted out, there's one person who can do it best, right? That's him. So it's kind of, you know, it is a it is a benevolent dictatorship, but it's benevolent, um, and there is there is the possibility of it decentralizing more uh, by just distributing tokens around and doing that. So we'll see where it develops. Right now, it's been working out really well. I'm really happy with how it turned out, and I'm really happy with with how it's looking uh, going forward. Awesome. Can you? And this is more into the like physical space. 
I know that you're a part of an NGO called UBIC, which is working in Croatia. Can you explain what, what that is and like the role you see with, of, of that kind of body existing in different countries? Um, yeah. Uh, so UBIC or the, it's literally translates to <laughs> like organization for blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Um, so it's not named after the Philip K. Dick book? <laughs> no. Okay, I was wondering about that. I was like, that's a weird title because like... <laughs> no, no. Um, no, it's literally an acronym. Okay. Um, and um, UBIC is like an organization that's, uh, that tries to educate uh, the government, the national bank, and enterprises about not being afraid of blockchain. Um, we try to do education for, for civilians. So, you know, uh, basics of financial hygiene, basics of crypto hygiene, uh, basics of DeFi, uh, just teaching people how to, how to blockchain, uh, but also teaching companies and banks and every, everybody else what's in it for them if they just, you know, accept our Lord and Savior Web3. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's worked in some cases, but the resistance is strong, the corruption even more so. And you have to, it's, it's a fight worth, worth having here. Um, in, in many ways, it's also a very fun fight because uh, the, the level of self-burn that these banks can inflict on themselves is, is also hilarious. Um, there are some organizations like that in neighboring countries that we do have some, a, bit of, a bit of contact with and we do organize some events with, but we would like there to be more collaboration. The problem is that uh, all of us on the board of that organization are uh, founders of something and we have negative hours in a day. And so it's really, really difficult to uh, devote ourselves properly to the cause when we have our own causes. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in a nutshell, we, we uh, organizations like ours are often in a bind where we need funding to hire full-time people to do administration. Because when somebody can do administration and we don't have to bother with that stuff, then we can focus on, you know, like doing education or just writing a good quality retort to some nonsense that some bank spouted out or that some bank bank crony uh, said on TV and so on. So uh, in most cases, it's the problem of, of administration and of just bothering with that stuff. That, that frees the rest of us up to, to do fighting. You know? um, but I do think that more of such organizations should exist and they should get in touch if they do exist because um, like a, a global network of freedom fighters is, is good. Yeah. I want to be uh, cognizant of your negative time. So just <laughs> more to wrap it up. Uh, I know you said that nobody reads books anymore. So where would you send someone, like if you could send, you know, the average Croatian, maybe someone who isn't super familiar with blockchain, isn't too super like tech savvy, but they wanted to learn about the space. Like what is like a sub stack you would send them to or articles or where would, where would, what would you have them do? Uh, coincidentally for Croats, exactly. I have uh, the Croatian version of Bitfalls, which is my original uh, education website. So there's a language selector and there are, there are posts in Croatian. If they just sort it by oldest, they will. It, it starts at what is cryptocurrency, then how blockchain works, then what is Solidity, what is Ethereum, what's the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum and so on. So it really does go through the basics. And actually, I would recommend it for anybody just starting out 
go to bitfalls.com, sort the posts by age and start with the oldest. Um, five posts in, you will, you will know enough to navigate around the, the space in a, in a basic way. From there, I, um, I honestly don't know. Everything I'm subscribed to, everything I read is, is often even over my head. So I don't know if I know any truly beginner resources. Um, that's a good problem, actually. That's, that's something that should be, that should be tackled. Huh. Uh, I guess for developers, I would say go to, yeah, I guess you, you have to also decide which chain you want to go on, uh, to, to build on. Um, cause you have, you have Ethereum and then you have Polkadot like stuff and then you have all the other chains that are, you know, worth paying attention to. Not, they're not all, um, they're not all bad. So I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd have to think about it, really. Huh. Yeah, I guess for Ethereum, you'd have to go to ETHUB because ETHUB is like the hub of information for Ethereum that is generally newbie-friendly enough to, to help you understand what's going on. For Polkadot, if you're a developer, you would go to substrate.dev for development. And for the regular stuff, stay tuned and keep an eye on polkadot.com, which we are going to be building into an education hub very, very soon. Awesome. If you look back, um, I don't know, you're not too far along in your life, but when you, at this point, 37, you said you just turned? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 37, 36. 36. Okay, so if you are going to look back on, on your life, what do you at this point want the biggest problem that you solve to be or that you help solve to be? Mm, I want to be the reason why a lot of people, and I don't know what a lot is, but a lot of people to know that there's a choice between Web 2 and Web 3. That they have a choice to go Web 3 native and exit the system. If I can help that, if I can help them safely exit the system and remove themselves from the, you know, clutches of the tax collectors and regulators and, and all the other, uh, gators from their life, uh, I'm, I'll, I'll be happy. So the, the more people I can remove from the traditional system and, um, you know, turn into kind of make, make them civil disobedient, um, by by just letting them escape the the gravitational pull of centralized government finance and everything else, um, that I'll, I'll be proud of that. I think it's a worthy cause, uh, Bruno. Thank you so much for your time. Are there any places you want to send people? Any final comments you want to have? Um, sure. If you want to keep up with what we're doing. Um, Subscribe to news.nft.review um, or just follow us on Twitter at, at Bedfalls or at Remark App, R-M-R-K-A-P-P. Um, and yeah, other than that, just join us 
anywhere, uh, try minting some NFTs with us, join us in this quest for, for Web3, for making it as, as natural to everybody as possible, and stay tuned for, for new releases and stuff. Oh, and by the way, if you want to play with the most advanced NFTs in the world, go to canaria.rmrk.app and see the NFT birds in action and how they can equip items and have multiple resources and trade items between themselves and do other crazy things. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. I'm very glad you exist and look forward to continuing talking to you. (laughs) Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. For sure.